Every industry is under pressure to innovate, to compete, or even survive. But a lot of companies just aren't prepared for the disruption, for the challenges, and for the legal risks associated with technology. In this series, we want to find out how companies can build a resilient tech strategy. And we're going to be looking into some data you may find surprising. Today's episode is all about cyber attacks. We've all read the stories. Headlines around the world are telling us to prepare ourselves for an increase in cyber attacks. It's a real risk for every business everywhere. One estimate suggests that over the last 12 months, there's been a dramatic spike in ransomware attacks, up an incredible 150%. All businesses are on high alert, looking to sure up their systems and protect themselves from hackers, but it's not always that easy. A lot of times, the way cyber attacks happen might surprise you. You might remember in 2021 when hackers launched an attack against Colonial Pipeline, disrupting fuel supplies to the US and causing long lines at the pump. How did they do it? Well, Colonial's CEO told US senators that it came down to the theft of a single password. And it's not just large corporations that are vulnerable. Hospitals, schools, and even water treatment plants have been targeted. Aside from the headache of dealing with an attack, businesses are increasingly facing an onslaught of litigation in the aftermath of cybersecurity breaches, from consumers seeking compensation after their data has been stolen, to shareholders wanting payback after stocks plummet. Okay, so what do companies need to know? I'm definitely a data guy, so I'm looking forward to speaking to Vasi Iliadis, a counsel at Hogan Levels who focuses on data privacy litigation and investigations, and Arwen Handley, a financial litigation and investigations partner. Arwen, let's start with you. We're seeing a heightened risk of cyber attacks and it's only getting worse. I read a crazy stat from Cybersecurity Ventures that said cybercrime costs are going to reach $10.5 trillion annually by 2025. What's driving this increased risk? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question. I think many commentators have linked this to the COVID pandemic. So there was an exponential increase in ransomware attacks over the period of lockdown. Um, I think I've seen a report that in 2021, there were 50% more attacks per week on corporate networks compared to 2020. And one of the reasons for that was thought to be linked to the fact that the number of, of people working remotely outside office networks had increased hugely. And obviously, if you've got some or, or most of your employees working from home, there's increased potential for office procedures to be short-circuited or maybe staff might not be paying so much attention to, you know, for example, phishing emails um, as they would do when they're in the office. And then, I mean, quite apart from the pandemic, I think ransomware attacks were on the increase in any event. And the amount of the ransoms that were being demanded was also increasing. It's clearly proven to be quite a good business model in the sense that many companies uh, quite understandably choose to pay the ransom demanded and move on. The more these tactics work, the more likely that existing operators will continue their current operations and that new groups will enter the fray. Vasi, what should companies be thinking about if there is a ransomware attack? Well, Upton, the legal landscape of whether to pay a ransom still remains complicated and uncertain. So it's not a straightforward answer. There is, of course, going to be legal risk. Um, and I'll give you an example. If the hackers are sanctioned persons, then a company in the U.S. who pays the ransom to that sanctioned organization or individual 
may be subject to an enforcement action and civil penalties by the U.S. Department of Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control. So in 2020, OFAC issued guidance, and it said definitively companies may be subject to civil penalties if they are paying ransom to individuals on a sanctioned entities list, on OFAC's specially designated nationals and blocked persons lists. And so that is significant uh, risk in determining whether to pay a ransom. But you know, even if you pay the ransom and data actually isn't recovered, or the stolen data has already been published on the dark web or YouTube, for example, paying a ransom isn't going to guarantee that you're going to get your data back um, in every case or that your data hasn't already been published and disseminated. So it is a significant risk. And I think the legal landscape for that reason remains still very uncertain. So a company may not have any reasonable cause to suspect that a payment is going to be made to a person or, or an entity on a sanctions list. I mean, clearly you can't turn a blind eye. You can do some due diligence. You can try and find out who you're paying. But sometimes genuinely you just don't know. If it later turns out that that the threat actor was on a sanctions list, in Europe this lack of any reasonable cause to have suspected that they were sanctioned actually would be a defence. So if you've got lack of reasonable cause that you're all right... You need to be able to prove it, obviously. And this used to be the position in the UK too. Historically, the UK's uh, regulated the Office for Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI. Historically, OFSI's only been able to levy a monetary penalty for breach of sanctions if the paying entity knew or had reasonable cause to suspect that they were paying a sanctioned person or, or company. However, as a response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the UK Parliament has recently passed a new act. It's the UK Economic Crime Transparency and Enforcement Act. And this is going to change the position. So we're now going to approach the issue effectively like the US does. Um, this new Economic Crime Act will enable OFSI to levy penalties on a strict liability basis. So the requirement to have reasonable cause to suspect that a breach of sanctions has taken place is going to be removed. At the time of recording this podcast, this part of the legislation is not yet in force, um, but it will be in force before long. And so this obviously presents real issues for anyone dealing with a ransom demand. And all the more reason to be diligent, take advice, use third parties to try and identify the source of, of the ransom demand. And where possible as well, I think, liaise with the sanctions authorities to, to appraise them of the position you're in and try and manage it that way. Avasi, you counsel clients on data security in the U.S. Can you walk us through the risks of a breach? Sure. So, of course, first and foremost, there's reputational risks. This is what our, our clients face more than anything. Um, data security incidents are becoming more and more prevalent across industries. Um, they're involving companies of varying sizes. And a company's reputation is undoubtedly impacted when, for example, uh, consumer data or uh, PHI has been involved in an incident, especially a ransomware attack, or a critical system, for example, holding a, a commercially sensitive information has been accessed. And this is a big deal for our clients. So I would say reputational risk is first and foremost one of the bigger risks. And of course, there's business disruption risk with ransomware in particular. You know, we're talking about completely ceasing operations um, or access to a particular system. And we're seeing that ransomware continues to be the most prevalent type of data security incident um, today. And it can be absolutely debilitating to uh, an organization's critical assets. In addition you know, to business disruption and, and reputational risk, we're seeing regulators in the U.S. in particular um, acutely focused on data security incidents. We see regulatory inquiries 
investigations and potential enforcement actions um, following these types of incidents from regulators like the state attorney generals across the U.S., um, the Federal Trade Commission, industry-specific regulators, for example, uh, insurance regulators, um, financial services regulators, and we're also seeing congressional inquiries as well uh, following an incident. And Arwen, is the situation comparable in the U.K.? On the UK side, that's equally applicable. So we've obviously got the UK uh, version of the GDPR, which governs the processing of personal data. And our Information Commissioner's Office is the regulator for that. Um, They regularly investigate firms in relation to breaches of the requirements of the UK GDPR. And they issue fines if, um, for example, companies don't have proper processes and controls to prevent data breaches. Barty talked about financial services firms. Um, financial services regulators over, over here also um, have, have put cybersecurity up at the top of their regulatory agenda over recent years. Numerous publications and consultations on the topic. And they really emphasise the need for financial institutions to have effective IT security plans, You know, a focus on cybersecurity issues within senior management, Cyber and operational resilience is a huge area of focus, and that's not just for the firm itself, but also um, a lot of emphasis on the importance of assessing third party providers, cybersecurity provisions and response plans. So not just you, but the companies you're interacting with as well. And the regulators um, just recently have got quite concerned about the reliance of so many market participants on a handful of cloud service providers and, the you know, frankly, the, the systemic risk that presents if you've got a hack on one of the services, for example, but these cloud service providers are servicing a load of financial institutions. So the UK um, Prudential Regulatory Authority is exploring ways to access more data from cloud providers, including on the operational resilience of their services. Also, I've seen reports that the PRA will be developing broader coordinated war games, which model more than one of the cloud service providers failing at the same time. So that's a real area of focus too. And what about the litigation side of it? Well, I'll start from the U.S., um, Upton. You know, (laughs) we have a very active litigation landscape following uh, data breaches and cyber attacks. And I think we're seeing uh, litigation from a couple different areas. First, we're seeing an increase in shareholder suits, uh, derivative lawsuits and fraud and securities class actions. We've seen mounting shareholder litigation following you know, in particular, ransomware events. And we're seeing allegations that boards of directors breached their duty of loyalty by failing to uh, respond to early red flags that an organization was susceptible to hackers or had heightened cyber risk. Um, and measures weren't taken to address or mitigate that risk uh, in a timely fashion, or that companies misrepresented uh, the risk of data intrusions. And I would say in the past five years, we've seen settlements upwards of $80 million in these types of shareholder suits. So that's certainly one um, piece of litigation risk following a ransomware attack. In addition to shareholder risk, we're also seeing consumer class actions, um, which has been happening for you know a decade now. Ransomware class actions in particular are a developing area, um, and that's even where a company's investigations can show that the motive of the ransomware attack was business disruption rather than the theft of data. And we're also seeing claims that 
you know, a company failed to do more to prevent the attack in the first place, which is similar to what, you know, shareholders are alleging in their suits. You mentioned Colonial Pipeline earlier. Um, we, you know, saw claims that consumers were forced to pay higher prices for a product or a service during an outage caused by a ransomware attack. And when one lawsuit is filed against a company in the wake of these incidents, we often see additional lawsuits being filed. So this is still a very much active area in the United States. I think that's uh, interesting to compare to the situation in the UK. We don't have the same class action system in the UK, as I'm sure uh, everyone knows. That's not to say that claimant firms aren't trying to get these actions off the ground, because they are. It's just a bit more difficult, frankly, uh, in the UK that the systems aren't the same. And there have been a couple of recent cases which have knocked back some of the ways in which claimants have tried to bring claims for for losses suffered as a result of a data breach. So, for example, the first case was uh, a decision by the UK Supreme Court about the use of the representative action procedure that we have here in the UK to bring data breach uh, claims. And claimant firms have tried to use this representative action procedure to found a collective action on behalf of consumers. And the idea of a representative action is that you you have one or more people with the same interest in a claim. And if you've got the same interest, that claim can be brought by one person as a representative of the whole of the rest of the people with the same interest. Judgment is going to be binding then on all the persons represented in the claim. And that's it's like an opt-out process. So the Supreme Court was asked to look at this. They were reasonably supportive of the use of representative actions for seeking declaratory relief about issues of liability. But in circumstances where you need an individual assessment of damages, so where each claimant has a different damages claim effectively, the Supreme Court ruled that representative actions were not available. So the claimant's action couldn't go ahead in that form. The second case related to the causes of action that can be pleaded in a data breach case. And claimants have um, been used to raise claims in tort, so arguing their private information's been misused and they've suffered damage because of that. So using our, our tort of the misuse of private information, also for breach of confidence claims. But in a, a, again, another recent development, the UK's High Court determined that the claimant couldn't seek damages on the basis of misuse of personal information or breach of confidence in respect of a data breach which followed a cyber attack. And this was because both of those causes of action required a positive wrongful act by the defendant, whereas here the breach uh, resulted from an external attack. So no positive wrongful act by the defendant itself. The wrongful act clearly was by the, the perpetrator. Finally, I'd like to end the podcast by asking your top piece of advice. As companies prepare for an increased risk of cyber attacks, what is the most important thing that they should be doing? Critically, thinking about where vulnerabilities are. Um, think about where you can strengthen your vulnerabilities. As we've indicated, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. So think not only about your own organisation's arrangements, but also about the third parties that you interact with. What do you know about their security? Could an incursion into the third party systems bleed into yours? And if so, how can you address that risk? Do you have IT security audit rights, for example, you can use in order to understand how that third party is set up? And I think as well, just looking internally, it's absolutely critical to provide regular reminders and refreshers for your own staff. Give them clear examples of what to look out for. Provide a way that they can report possible attempts to infiltrate the company. So having a central place, for example, to report possible phishing attacks and just make sure 
and make it clear it's everyone's responsibility to guard against a cyber attack. And Upton, I would say, look, cyber risk is here to stay. This is unfortunately the world we are living in, and corporate leaders need to prioritize it. Cyber risk management should be a regular line item in board meetings. And I say this because it's important, but also just a couple of months ago, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, sent guidance on this topic to the National Association of Corporate Directors, which is common among board directors in the U.S., And that guidance details what CISA describes as urgent focus areas for every organization's C-suite and board. And that includes empowering CISOs to become involved in business decision-making processes for risk to the company, encouraging senior management at a company to lower the threshold for reporting of data security incidents, testing and tabletopping a company's incident response plan. I think part of this is also considering whether to invest in a dedicated cyber legal role if a company doesn't have one already. We're starting to see this kind of role pop up more frequently, and that's because I think there's been a shift in viewing cybersecurity merely as a technology issue. Now it's become an essential element of overall enterprise risk management, and legal really should play a role. And certainly the C-suite and the board should be kept apprised of any cyber risk that would significantly impact an organization and its critical assets. Thank you both for joining us today. For more information on the issues we've talked about, including the litigation landscape report, head to the website hoganlevels.com. You can also get in touch with Vossi, Arwin, or your Hogan Levels contact.